Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. Hello, America. This is Indivisible Radio. I'm Kathy Warzer in the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm in for Carrie Miller. We're in week three of Indivisible, a new nationwide program made possible through a partnership between WNYC in New York and Minnesota Public Radio. The show is an opportunity for us to listen and talk with each other rather than talking at, to, or past one another. There's a different topic each evening. Thursdays, we concentrate on American identity. Who we are and how is the sense of ourselves changing as our country, as our world, undergoes significant changes. A bit later in the program, we're going to explore the assumptions, cliches, and stereotypes we have about each other based on where we live. But we're going to start the show with the news of the day. It's a big story. A ruling on President Trump's immigration orders has come down. And this afternoon, a federal appeals court has refused to reinstate the president's temporary ban on travelers from seven Muslim-majority nations. The case was argued Tuesday by Justice Department lawyers and attorneys representing Washington State and Minnesota. To be clear, the order remains blocked as ordered several days ago by a lower court judge in Seattle. Let's let's learn more right now about the decision from a pair of legal experts. On the phone tonight, Professor Margaret Russell. She teaches constitutional law at Santa Clara University in Santa Clara, California. Professor Russell, how are you? Uh, Very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Professor Shireen Shireen Sinar teaches at Stanford Law School, Stanford Law School in Palo Alto, California. Professor, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Professor Russell, this was a unanimous decision from the three-judge panel. How resounding is this rebuke of the new administration? Well, I I think it is definitely a a very full win for the states that brought this case originally, but there were some questions left unanswered. So the Ninth Circuit opinion today, for example, was very clear on the question of the, the fact that they have the power as the judiciary to review executive actions. And that sounded like a rebuke, actually. They said um, this idea that the president's decisions are unreviewable runs contrary to the fundamental structure of our constitutional democracy. So that is sounds like a rebuke to me. On other issues, they were more muted. But overall, that's right. They were unanimously against the uh, Trump administration on this. You know, the judges noted compelling public interests on both sides. Uh, what did you see when it comes to that? Yeah, so, so when uh, in constitutional law you, you see the magical word compelling governmental interest, um, it really does have a certain meaning, which means that it's the highest order of interest. And by saying that those exist on both sides, the court went on to say that rather than lift the stay on the ban 
has decided below that the burden was really on the Trump administration to show why they should upset the decision that was below. And they said that even though there were compelling governmental interests on both sides, it was up to the Trump administration to prove that they could justify the additional burden of showing that the the stay should be lifted and the ban should be back in place. Professor Sanar, what did you make of the ruling? I would agree that it sends a very strong signal that the courts have an important role to play in reviewing executive decisions, even those about national security. Uh, I think it also sends a strong signal that the court was concerned that the travel ban might have been motivated by religious discrimination. And although it is a preliminary ruling, so it was not reaching a decision on that question or any of the constitutional questions, um, it uh, certainly suggested that, uh, that it was a serious uh, matter or serious concern for the court, uh, and that was one of the reasons that uh, it, um, you know, refused to grant the government's request to um, halt the uh, the ban on the ban, <laughs> as it were. Uh, I think the other thing that's significant about uh, the ruling today is that um, we now have two decisions by judges who are appointed by Republican presidents uh, staying the travel ban. So the initial trial court judge who uh, issued the order blocking the travel ban was appointed by a Republican president, um, as well as one of the three judges today um, who issued this unanimous decision, um, uh, you know, upholding the prior uh, ruling. So it's not just liberal judges who are blocking the president or concerned about this, um, but also those um, on the other side of the political spectrum. What are the practical effects of this order then? Folks can continue to come into the country just as they did before the order was issued? That's right. So essentially, it returns us to the status quo before the executive order was issued. And, you know, that's hugely important for the, you know, the the thousands of people, essentially, who were directly affected, whether it's, you know, students who are stranded abroad who couldn't return to their universities or families that were divided um, by the travel ban, Um, as well as actually the many American businesses that were impacted um, either because of their employees not being able to travel um, or so forth. Yeah, Professor Russell, the administration argued that the order was not reviewable by the courts, basically that the president has unchecked power in this area. How do the judges come down on that? That's an extraordinary argument. And, and even during the oral argument, I think I and many other people could hardly believe that it was being made because we have three branches of government. It's a basic civics, American constitutional lesson that they provide checks and balances against each other. So to argue that there is no reviewability, even when concerns of national security are at issue, is uh, I think that's very much outside of the mainstream. And I'm not at all surprised that the court unanimously rejected that. The states of Washington and Minnesota made a few arguments uh, in challenging the validity of the order, that it amounted to religious discrimination, that it could actually harm uh, national security, that it affected the state's tax base. Um, Which of these arguments do you think won the day for them in the end? I think of the of the arguments that you mentioned, um, uh, Professor Sinar is quite right that the court did not rule ultimately on the merits on several of them, but they were clearer on some. So, for example, on the question of religious discrimination, the court did not say it is or it isn't. They just said that the Trump administration had not met the burden that it had given the serious considerations at stake. So they left that question open and unresolved. 
on the due process question, I think they went a little further. And actually, the Trump administration may be further back than it was before it appealed in speaking more strongly about the effect of these issues on non-citizens and actually the application of constitutional protections on non-citizens. And that was very interesting. And then finally, on the issue of standing, the issue of whether or not Minnesota and Washington and other, other, other states could actually have the authority to bring this suit based on their injuries through the injuries of people within their borders, the court was very clear. They said at this point, it is clear that states have standing. Any comment on this, uh, Professor Sanar? Right. No, I would agree with that. That uh, particular. I was also struck by the uh, the strength of the uh, kind of the pronouncement on the due process rights of individuals, um, and uh, the court didn't limit its opinion or the concern uh, to just those who have been living in the United States for some time or to uh, to you know permanent residents uh, of the U.S., um, but also suggested that others might have relevant due process rights here, um, including people who might be abroad but who might have some relationship with a U.S. resident, like a spouse of you know, someone who's a U.S. citizen. Um, and I think that point is important because at one point uh, the government had, uh, in the hearing earlier this week, had asked that, well, if you're not going to rule for us completely, at least can you limit the injunction maybe to those who um, have um, – were already issued visas to enter the U.S., for instance, who are already living in the U.S. And the court uh, you know, uh, did not take up that invitation, essentially said that the due process rights of, of people here extend um, beyond green card holders um, and to others who are um, in the U.S. or even abroad. If you're just tuning in, by the way, this is Indivisible Radio. I'm Kathy Warzer, and we're talking about uh, today's decision by an appeals court, that appeals court panel uh, that uh, has refused to reinstate the president's temporary ban on travelers from seven Muslim-majority nations, and we're talking about that here. Um, I'm curious, uh, both professors here, um, the president's President Trump's prior statements about a Muslim ban, how do they factor into the decision? Can you glean anything from that, Professor Russell? It's interesting. In the oral argument just two days ago, um, there were a number of questions basically asking this, uh, asking of the, uh, the government lawyer, the Department of Justice lawyer, is there any evidence in the record one way or the other about this? And in response, it was clear that there was information outside of the record, and the justices wondered, could they consider that? For example, Rudy Giuliani's statements about uh, actually Trump's asking him how to craft a Muslim ban, and also language from Trump itself during the, his campaign that said that he clearly wanted a Muslim ban. So it's not clear at this point whether or not that's going to be taken into account. But just by acknowledging it, I think it's very significant that, that it will be in some way taken into account uh, once the case is decided on the merits. What parts of this decision do you think are most vulnerable to reversal by a higher court? And I I ask that because the president tweeted right after the ruling, see in court. Uh, So this is, I, I would presume, then going to the next step. So the first question is, what is the next legal step here, Professor? So the government may choose to appeal this decision to the Supreme Court. Uh, At that point, it would take a majority of the court uh, to overturn it. So at this point, we have eight justices. That means that five justices uh, would have to overturn uh, the result, um, which I think may be be difficult for the government. Um, The... 
in terms of which parts of the decision are vulnerable, um, you know, at this point, given the standard of review and the fact that it was the government's burden to show how it was irreparably uh, harmed by um, by the stay on the ban, um, you know, it's a st- tough standard for the government to meet. Uh, potentially, there might be questions about the scope of the injunction, about whether it should apply nationwide or so forth. Um, but uh, um, in the, the standard here uh, does favor the states um, because it is the government's burden to show that it, um, it would have faced an immediate you know, irreparable harm. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, of course, is President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. Um, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on this. What do you make of Gorsuch's comments to a senator that the president's attacks on judges are demoralizing? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll chime in here. So, so it's interesting. To my understanding, these were remarks that were made to individual senators in their offices. And so even though um, they weren't made as part of a public prepared speech, it seems to me that it's pretty clear that he would have expected those statements in some way, shape or form to to leak outwards. And so I think um, they they seem to me like statements that are very pretty much typical of a person, especially a judge who understands the role of courts, and that it's disheartening to hear that someone is disparaging the power of judges themselves rather than just rejecting the reasoning of the decision. Ask that question, Professor Russell, because uh, President Trump criticized uh, the Washington judge, uh, Judge Robart, calling him a so-called judge and saying we could blame future terror attacks on the judge. And I'm curious, any chance that the president's uh, open disdain for the federal court played a role in this particular decision? I don't think I- so. And 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 here's why that um uh- President Trump actually has made comments, disparaging comments about judges before, most particularly the judge in his case involving Trump University. Judges, uh, even though they're not used to hearing that kind of disparagement from a president, I think they're used to having their rulings criticized. So I think they try to insulate themselves from that kind of influence. Professor Sinar? Right. I would just say that while it may not have influenced this particular decision, I think it is a concern for the judiciary in general. And, you know, there is a very strong commitment to the role, uh, to the rule of law and to the role of the courts, um, including in this current Supreme Court. Um, And so to some extent, the more that the role of courts um, is attacked by the president or, you know, uh, not just the rulings, but in a sense, the, you know, the ability of judges to kind of question him um, as seen, uh, you know, as a threat, I think while it doesn't influence what the judges, um, how they interpret particular provisions of the law, uh, I think they are concerned that, you know, what we see unfolding here with this administration is something that goes kind of beyond what we've seen from any previous administration um, of either party, um, that it is a more frontal challenge potentially to the the judiciary, um, just in the same way that we've seen very direct attacks against the press and against other institutions that might, um, you know, that the, the you know, the president uh, doesn't view as uh, supporting um, his uh, his position. Um, so I, I do think that judges, uh, you know, across the board may be concerned by it. Um, and, you know, I don't think that, you know, these issues, uh, even the questions that come before the courts will necessarily track the traditional kind of ideological divisions um, because of those concerns about the, the rule of law and, and some basic, uh, you know, principles more generally. Any sense from both of you as to how fast an appeal could be made in this in this realm? I mean, um, timelines at all? Do you have any feel for that, Professor Russell? 
Well, just in thinking about this today, so I've noted the the Supreme Court is actually um, out of session until February 17th. And as Professor Sinar mentioned, it takes it takes four justices of the Supreme Court to decide even that they'll grant the right to review. I think it's very unlikely that um, any of that will happen. It is quite possible that the Trump administration will say, see you in court and proceed along these lines, either asking the three-judge panel to rehear the case or potentially asking for what's called en banc, which means that still at the Court of Appeals level, a majority of the sitting judges of the circuit can vote to rehear the case. Um, And all of that actually takes time, even when it's an expedited kind of schedule. So the Trump administration actually has some other options other than just following the procedural procedural mechanisms up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Final question here. Uh, This program on Thursdays is about identity. So, Professor Sinar, what does this say about our identity as a nation of laws and checks and balances? And, And I ask you that because Annie on Twitter just said, just when you thought checks and balances... Government was going to hell in a handbasket. The court remains arm's length steady. So what, is it, what does this ruling say about checks and balances? Right. Um, well, you know, I would say first that, you know, again, this is just one decision and a preliminary decision. So, um, you know, I think this particular controversy and dispute will uh, will be unfolding. Um, but I do think that it does send a signal that uh, you know, the court's care about uh, uh, about the, the the role of the judiciary in in reviewing executive action um, and in protecting constitutional rights and whatever they end up deciding I think this uh, initial decision um, is a uh, is a really strong signal of that commitment and a final comment here professor Russell yes I, I think that it's several points in today's Ninth Circuit opinion, the court states very clearly that there are serious interests at stake. And I think that's a signal um, with regard to the role of the judiciary in the American set of values, that it's important when there are these serious interests of freedom and due process and equal protection and, uh, uh, and other constitutional interests that the courts will take the time and take the care to ensure that people's rights are not infringed. At least that's what I read into that particular set of sentences today. All right. You two were so kind to join us on such short notice here this evening. Thank you so very much. Thank Thank you. you for having me. Professor Margaret Russell teaches constitutional law at Santa Clara University in Santa Clara, California. Professor Shireen Sinar teaches at Stanford Law School in Palo Alto, California. You, of course, are invited to join the conversation. We're going to switch focus here in just a little bit and talk a bit about um, identity, where you live. How does where you live affect um, how you view the world, especially when it comes to politics? We have a couple of great guests coming your way, so please stick around. Indivisible Radio continues right after this. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm glad you're with us. I'm Kathy Werzer here at Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota, sitting in for Carrie Miller. President Trump talked during the campaign about securing our borders, strengthening the vetting process for immigrants to get into this country. And it was a message that resonated with his supporters, large numbers of whom live in rural and suburban America. And that's where we will move to next on Indivisible Radio, an exploration into why there are such stark political, cultural, social, and economic differences between those who live in rural areas and those who live in our largest cities. I'm curious to know what you think is causing this deepening rift between the city and the country. Call us with your thoughts. Here's the number, 1-844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. Or if you prefer to follow the conversation on Twitter, I'm at Kathy Wurzer. Kathy's with a C, Wurzer's with a Z, W-U-R-Z-E-R. The hashtag is Indivisible Radio. I want to start with Dante Chinney. Dante is the director of the American Communities Project at American University. The American Communities Project is fascinating. It looks at how the U.S. is changing in the 21st century. They have a massive trove of economic and demographic data against election results and other information to see what's at play in different communities, who's doing well, who isn't, and why. Dante is also a journalist in residence at George Washington University. Dante, thanks for spending some time on Indivisible Radio. Well, thank you for having me. Well, uh, once the appeals court ruling came down this afternoon, Dante, the president, went on Twitter, as is his custom, and sent the message, the security of our nation is at stake, in all capital letters. How does this message play to the president's rural supporters, and why? Well, it's a really good question. The thing that's remarkable when you look at the polling data, and I think the election results, obviously, is how much of his support is in rural America. The, the, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll in January just asked positive, negative, your feelings about uh, Donald Trump. He wasn't president yet. This is just before he was inaugurated. 27% of people who lived in ur- urban America had positive feelings about him. 40% of people in suburban America had positive feelings about him. But 52% of people in rural America had positive feelings about him. In fact, that was the only group where his positive was higher than his negative. And when you look at how that plays across the board, uh, you see it on what they think Donald Trump should do. Uh, getting the wall built is more of a priority in rural America. 33% of people in rural America say that is a top priority he needs to get done in the first year, or I guess get started on. Uh, deporting illegal immigrants. 43% of people who live in rural America say that is a top priority. Now, the numbers are much lower when you get into suburban America, and particularly uh, urban America. It, it's just it, there are just very different views on all this stuff. My guess is that 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 tweet that went out was greeted in rural America, and that not, look, not everybody in rural America is a supporter of Donald Trump, but he has a lot of supporters out there, and that was greeted, I'm sure, with you know fist bumps and high fives. Do we know what's behind 
some of the fear, I guess, around immigration when it comes to folks who live in rural areas and suburban areas? Is well, that what thing, this is reflective of, is fear? Well, I mean, the one thing I'd say in rural America in particular, suburban America is is much more complicated. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton actually did pretty well in a lot of suburban America. But when you get out to rural America, we've seen, and we did, there was actually a story on this in the Wall Street Journal in the fall where we were talking about rural populations moving in, or uh, immigrant populations moving into rural areas. Remember, when you get into a rural area, and I've seen this going on in my reporting, you know, you add 10, 15, 20 people uh, to that that are to that population from a different place, and that's that's a big change. Now, it's not a big change in terms of real numbers, but in terms of this is a different group of people coming to a place. They're they're not of the of the community, and I think that's that's where some of this comes from. Like it, the feeling that things are changing. Look, the one thing about rural America is things change much more slowly there. The country looks very different in rural America than it does in urban America. So any bit of change, I think, is viewed with a little more skepticism than it is in uh, places like urban America in particular, where things change a lot and often and quickly. Uh, rural America is becoming much more multicultural, more diverse, demographically speaking, and, and a lot of these areas have seen rapid demographic change. Can you put some numbers to that for us? Well, it's it really is place to place. When you when you talk about what I call rural America, rural middle America, and uh, going out and talking about um, aging farmlands, which is really kind of uh, places that rely on agriculture, you're talking about small changes, changes of a percentage point or two in terms of the, in terms of the immigrant population. But again, th- those are big changes, and and it's not just immigrant population. And the other thing to keep in mind in a lot of these communities, in every community, is how interconnected everything is now. So. I would go and talk to people in rural communities, and they would bring up the fact that um, at the grocery store they go to, uh, the, their, the labels and a lot of the products they buy were in Spanish as well as English. And that was something that they felt was um, should not be uh, because, frankly, even if they don't have a lot of immigrants or a different kind of population where they live, they think this is America, and, and that's not the way things are supposed to operate. And again, it's it's... It's a disconnect with what life is like in some parts of the country versus other parts of the country. It's Look, we've always had something of an urban-rural divide in this country, but it's never been as stark as it is right now, number one. And then number two, it's never been so easy to... to like The divide is so stark that if you go on the Internet or you look at certain... Go to certain news sites or you can be given a very different view of what's going on by talking about just... How radically different a place can look, even if it's just uh, 50, 50 miles from you, 60 miles from you, 100 miles from you. It can look very different, and it doesn't fit with your version, your vision of what reality is if you live in a rural community. So I want to go to the phones and uh, go to Manhattan. I want to talk to Dan. Dan, good evening. How are you? Hi there. Um, yeah, my, uh, <clears throat> my comment was um, sometimes um, you react to uh, another person based on how you think they see you. Um, a lot of times people in rural areas uh, and southern areas um, assume that city people look down upon them, see them as unsophisticated, and, and that they're not taking their concerns um, you know, seriously as, as valid. And that creates an automatic adversarial relationship. Um, you know, any opinion that might come from, let's say, an, an urban person will be seen as, oh, that's just, a, that's just the urban opinion. They know nothing about here, and they think we're all... Um, you know, stupid, and that creates basically a, 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 an impediment to any sort of conversation, even when it becomes issue-based, where rural and urban people would have a lot of things in common. 
All right. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. Dante, did what Dan uh, said make sense to you? Yeah, I think that I think there is. And and remember, there there is this the reality. The reality is urban America and rural America look and feel very different now. Look, they're, they're very different in all sorts of different ways. The economies function differently. It's not just how people look, uh, the different the difference uh, differences in the way people look. I mean, it's there's the lives are very different. So I think there is a tendency, I think, to to look at people that are from a different place and say, especially urban America, rural America, look at urban America and say, you think you have more money. You think you have more wealth. You think you have a better life. You don't. And, you know, I choose to live my life differently, and that doesn't mean it's bad. And look, some of this I do think when you talk about living in rural America is justified in terms of they feel as though they're looked down upon. I do think sometimes people in urban America look down on rural America. The, the one concern I have that's being played in the media right now is this idea that people who live in urban America live in a bubble. Um, people who live in urban America do live in a bubble. So do people in rural America. They live in a bubble. Everybody lives in a bubble. And I think that that's it, the disparities are really sharp between urban and rural America, but the people who live in different places live in different realities, and it makes it much harder to kind of see each other the way we need to be seen, to get create the understanding we need. If you'd like to join the conversation, I hope you will. We're actually talking, of, uh, having a very interesting conversation about uh, where you live and how, is that, how that affects how you see the world, perhaps, and how you vote. Um, I hope you'll join the conversation. Here's the number to call, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-T-A-L-K. You can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. And with us is uh, Dante Chinney. He's the director of American Communities Project at American University. Um, Kathy Kramer of UW-Madison, I'm sure you're familiar with her, Dante, uh, has spent a great deal of time studying folks who live in rural Wisconsin. And she has said that many people she talked to in small-town Wisconsin have what amounts to a basket of rural resentment. Uh, Their jobs aren't great. The pay isn't good. Resources seem to be going to the cities. You know, there's just this litany. They feel ignored. They feel looked down upon. Is there validity to that? Well, I think there may be some validity, again, toward uh, rural people who look at urban people and say, you look down on us. I, I do think, though, that a, a lot of those, the, the basket of, the basket of um, uh, what, what was it, a basket of? The basket of rural resentment. Of rural resentment. A lot of those resentments are based on things that really are real. Urban places are, in fact, economically doing better. Okay. Urban places are, in fact, growing. I mean, they're getting bigger. It's. I think it's absolutely fascinating you know, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in America by about 3 million votes. She only won 490 counties. There are 3,100 counties in the United States. She only won, she won fewer than 500 of them, and she still won the popular vote by 3 million votes. That just goes to show you, look, urban places are, they, they, they hold so many people, and those places are still growing. And I think that a lot of rural resentment is based on the fact that they're they're shrinking, they have higher unemployment rates, and, you know, economically things are tougher there. Those things are all actually true right now. It's, 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 look, a lot of what drove rural anger and kind of propelled Donald Trump into the presidency, we can talk about whether or not, you know, people approve of the vote choices they make. Obviously, people have different opinions. They don't. Hillary voters think Trump voters are crazy. Trump voters think Hillary voters are crazy. But the fact of the matter is the resentments they have were about real problems in rural America. Rural America is struggling right now. I I don't think that's unfair.
I want to bring into the conversation a woman who uh, works at the state level, state lawmaker. Uh, I think this could be interesting to have her into the conversation here. Colorado State Representative Perry Buck is with us. Uh, Representative Buck is a Republican in the Colorado Assembly, and she hails from Windsor, Colorado, which I think, Representative, is that between Greeley and Fort Collins, Colorado? Yes, that's a good way of saying it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nice little area, mostly agricultural, I think. Uh, not so much Windsor, but uh, Greeley uh, is where I'm a, a third generation. Uh, so Greeley is a very, very, um, uh, just they do an excellent job in agriculture. What do you make of what we were just talking about here with uh, Dante Chinney and our, our callers about rural resentment that seemed to fuel perhaps support for President Trump? Is that what you're seeing in your district? I'm not sure if I want to think it's rural versus urban as much as I want to think of it as what were the top three or four concerns of a voter. And um, I don't know if anybody wants to, I mean, everybody kind of likes labels, but I I don't know if this was a Republican-Democrat type of election as much as what were the top, um, uh, what were the three or four top concerns of a a voter. And I think... um, I think people wanted to feel secure in this country and who was going to do that better. Uh, was it going to be Trump or was it going to be Hillary? Uh, I think people wanted uh, want jobs in this country. Um, and who would have done that better or who's going to do the same as what we had with Obama? And um, people want less regulation and want somebody that understands how regulations can stifle businesses and who will do that better, uh, Hillary or uh, Trump. So I think... To me, I mean, I think Trump pulled uh, votes from areas that had had, had always been diehard uh, Democrats, and um, uh, I think you know some Republicans were turned off by Trump because he didn't fit uh, you know uh, what they thought a president should act like. So I, I just think this was an extremely unique election. And but I think at the end of the day, I think it's like I said, it's not a rural um, urban issue as much as it is what the people wanted um, uh, from from their their leader. Dante, have any comment to this? Well, I would. uh, It's an interesting perspective. I I would say that uh, I think a lot of what was driving what people wanted was differed by where they lived. I mean, I spend, granted, I spend a lot of time looking and thinking about geography, but when you talk about cutting regulations, clearly, if you want to cut regulations on business, I think Donald Trump was probably going to be your candidate, I'd imagine. When you talk about things like unemployment or, or security, I really do think that the unemployment rate, particularly in urban America, was down. And, it, and it's been down quite a ways. Urban America bounced back much faster than the rest of the country. When you talk about where the economic growth is, I mean, Hillary Clinton's counties that she won, again, it's 500 counties out of 3,100. These are the most urban places. They represent, I think, two-thirds of GDP growth or two-thirds of national GDP. This is where the economic growth is happening. So it's interesting. I do think the perspective of of the perspective that that, uh, she's providing is the perspective of of the, the way a more rural place did see this election. I mean, there's no question that... Hillary Clinton won the most democratic places in the country, and she won them by massive margins. When I look at the results and I look at what happened, the thing that's most astounding to me is Donald Trump was able to get more votes out of places that had less population growth. So out of all the counties Donald Trump won, they produced uh, 
3.9 million more or 3.8 million more votes than they produced in 2012, even though the population in those places had only grown by 2.8 million people. Hmm. Those are rural places that they the, the amount of votes they produced outpaced the population growth and the population growth in those places was slow. That's to me, that's the story of the election. Yeah. Hmm. Go ahead, Representative. No, I think that's it. I mean, I, I just think there's a culmination of a lot of different factors <laughs> that um, at the end of the day, I think I don't know if anybody could have really guessed uh, what this election was going to do. I don't know. It's <laughs> I'm curious, Representative, uh, what don't we understand about folks who live in rural America? What are some of the, the stereotypes or things that we don't quite understand if you live in a city? Well, I, I do think the rural people are um, uh, depend on each other, more community-oriented. I think they don't like government telling them how to live. I think they don't um, like government picking winners and losers, um, you know, as far as uh, um, regulations or tax credits, that, that types of things. I think um, rural people don't probably trust government. I mean, I'm in government, and sometimes I shake my head on why we look at government as this one-size-fits-all, or my frustration in, in what, I don't know if you heard, Weld County at one point in time was trying to create a, a succession <laughs> from, from <laughs> because of they were frustrated because they were doing that. It was it, it was a one-size-fits-all. And what works for Denver, Colorado, does not work for Weld County or some of the northeast um, counties. They want to be left alone. They choose to live out in that rural area. And to me, that that was um, that's that's the frustration I think I've sensed from from rural people. I appreciate your time here, Representative. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. And I really enjoy um, listening to NPR. It's it's interesting um, information. Thanks. We appreciate that. That's Colorado State Representative Perry Buck. Uh, she's from Windsor, Colorado. And we're taking your phone calls. Too. We're going to get, we have a lot of phone calls here, uh, Dante, so we're going to try to get to some of them after the break. Uh, with us on the line, Dante Chinney. He's the director of the American Communities Project at American University. He's also a, a journalist in residence at George Washington University. You are invited to join the conversation, of course. You can call 844-745-TALK. T-A-L-K. I'm seeing a lot of people on Twitter here this evening. You can use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. We're also at IndivisibleRadio.com. Again, we're going to get to your comments and your questions right after the break. Indivisible Radio, by the way, is a brand new program. It's a partnership between WNYC in New York City and Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. We'll be back after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. 
Hey, we're back. I'm Kathy Warzer in tonight for Carrie Miller talking about identity, who we are, and how is the sense of ourselves changing as our country undergoes significant changes. Uh, we're kind of exploring the assumptions, the cliches, the stereotypes we have about each other based on where we live. Dante Chinney has been nice enough to spend the night with us. He's the director of the American Communities Project at American University, and we're taking your phone calls. And we have another special guest that's ready to go, too. But first, I want to go to the phones here, Dante, and uh, talk to some folks out there. Uh, Patty is in Marlboro, Maryland. Is that right, Patty? Yeah, it's called Upper Marlboro. Okay. So where are you originally from? I'm originally from Wyoming. Great state. Great state. Yeah, terrific state, but kind of the reddest of the red. Well, tell me a little bit about your transition from Wyoming to Maryland, and and I presume you still have friends and family in Wyoming, and what are they seeing? Oh, sure. Yeah, I still have um, family in Wyoming. Um, I'm from Casper, so um, I came to D.C. for a job. Uh, I worked, um, if you can believe it, about a block from the White House for uh, quite a number of years, I worked for an engineering firm, architectural engineering, in downtown D.C. Uh, so for a number of years, I got to get off the commuter bus and walk by the White House and wave at the Obamas as I went to work every morning and every afternoon. So that was an amazing experience for somebody who grew up in Wyoming. I was born in North Dakota, lived a little bit in Minnesota, and moved to Wyoming when I was 10 and left Wyoming when I was just shy of 50 years old. What- so. It's kind of an amazing difference. No kidding. Yeah. So in, since your friends, a lot of your friends are still back in Wyoming, um, are, are they? how are they viewing the political landscape? Well, um, the rift that you guys were talking about is pretty evident, both in my family and in my circle of friends. I keep in touch with a lot of them, mostly by Facebook, on occasion um, texting on the phone, not a lot of phone calls. And I go back to visit oh, three times a year, four times a year, but... I mean, I've got friends who are very, very progressive and who are really struggling in Wyoming because they are such a tiny minority. And then I've got uh, family and friends who are also quite conservative. And um, gosh, the, the divide is almost insurmountable. I'm just baffled. I'm just baffled. And it's frustrating. All right. Thanks, Patty, for, those, for that comment. So, Dante, uh, what did you hear there that made sense to you? Well, I mean, it's it's... The thing that's actually fascinating is to to move, I mean, to go from North Dakota and Wyoming to live in Upper Marlboro. I mean, Upper Marlboro is, that's Peachy County. That's right outside of D.C. here. That's, um, it's, um, it's a very different place. And, and, you know, I think for the caller, there probably was a little bit of culture shock moving here. You know, let's keep in mind, I mean, people are still people. (laughs) There there are nice people everywhere. But uh, I think that that divide she's talking about, it, the people, and I will say the thing that's really fascinating when you look at what's going on between urban and rural America, rural America increasingly, again, is, is shrinking. So a lot of people are leaving are, are leaving rural America on the whole. If you look at rural counties, they're shrinking in population, the smallest counties. Uh, and they're going to these bigger, or, or these bigger urban places, these parts of the population. What does that mean? That means that the population population left behind in the rural counties actually tends to be more conservative. It's almost like self-affirming. Like, say, if you take the last couple blue families out of Wyoming, Wyoming gets redder, and and PG County gets bluer. I mean, that's that's the story of what's happening in the country right now. The sorting that's going on. What do you make of the important divisions between red states and blue cities? Um, that was mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, with the representative from Colorado. What what's good for Denver doesn't necessarily mean it's good for the outlying areas. 
I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, the the the, the reality is, it is it's again. You can drive an hour, drive two. Look, I'm I'm here in Washington D.C. Out here is Prince William County. Hillary Clinton won Prince William County by 21 points. Right next, right next to it is Fauquier County. Donald Trump won Fauquier County by 21 points. They're right next to each other. They're radically different places. They just really are. And it has to do the populations in those places are different. It's just it's the needs in those places are different. Prince William is becoming more and more urban. And as it becomes more and more urban, it has different issues. Its issues are about transportation. Its issues are about development. And in a place like Fauquier, it's much more about keeping development out, wanting to maintain farmland as much as you can, keeping it rural. And, and really wanting to push government out, whereas as a place becomes more urban, it needs government because it needs more, basically, systems to keep things going. Hmm. I want to hear from Ilsa uh, specifically tonight. She's from rural Kentucky. Ilsa, where are you in rural Kentucky? Hi. Well, I'm actually from Costa Rica, but I've been living in, in rural Kentucky for 13 years. It's Henry County, which is about 40 miles north of Louisville. Oh, okay. Are you on a farm? Yes, we're in a farm. So tell me a little bit about your neighbors, uh, how you interact with them. Are, are there folks who uh, look up, who look down upon you, perhaps, because you're in a rural area? How's that playing out for you? Um, it, my neighbors are wonderful. Um, one of our neighbors is literally family. Um, we do not talk about politics <laughs> because that's the one point where we really, really differ. Um, and this is something I've thought about a lot um, since the election because it was such uh, a shock to me, the results. Um, and most of my neighbors voted for Trump. Uh, we're probably the only raging liberals in our little town. Um, and these are not dumb people. These are not uninformed people. These are people that I care about and admire in many ways, but I really feel like they voted against their own interests in many ways by casting their vote that way and so I've been thinking a lot about how they could buy into these alternate stocks let's put it that way um, my theory is that people that live in rural areas have been holding on to that 1950s idea of the United States that Norman Rockwell America um, and when you live in the country and you still grow your own tomatoes in the summer and you still get together with your neighbors and you still are very focused on family. I mean, there's so many things about living in the country that allow you to slow down and, and hold on to that idea of the old-fashioned days, you know, the, the mm-hmm. olden days, the, all that stuff. The turnover is not as high in the country. People don't move in and out like in the city, so it's, mm-hmm. it's much more settled. And so I think that you can hold on to that idea that the things are still the same. And in the last, you know, Year, few years, especially the last eight years, there were so many changes that really came and sort of slapped them on the face that it was a real shock to them that, okay. that the United States was not that, you know, 1950s thing. And so when somebody came and gave them that alternative to go back to the idea, they took it. All right. Thank you. Ilsa, we're going to run here. Thank you so much for the call. Say, so I want to bring in uh, Linda Torado right now. Linda's an author, uh, blogger. The book, Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. She's in Athens, Ohio. I'm thinking, Linda, by the way, how are you tonight? I'm still here. How are you? All right. Fantastic. So far, so good. Yeah, thanks. I'm thinking you probably have something to say about what Ilsa was talking about there in rural Kentucky. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, she wasn't wrong about the pace of life being different, um, and that that is is very much part of what informs our our behavior. I mean, I live in the woods in Ohio, and I'm from small town Utah originally. I've also lived on H Street, you know, right above Union Station in D.C., and kind of traveled around to a lot of cities. And and the difference really is that you don't run into people that that don't share your basic assumptions in the country as much as you do the city. Because out in the country, everybody wants to live in the woods or they want to live on a farm. And you have that in common and you know it no matter what. And in a city, I mean, you might live next to somebody that has absolutely nothing in common with you. So I, I think that, that that would be a salient point, yeah. Mm. I'm curious about the thought that Ilse had about folks, some folks in rural America are holding on to this 1950s version of America. And some would say, well, you know what, what's wrong with that? But... I mean, I would argue that there's a lot of people, both in the cities and the countries, holding on to a version of 1950s America. The, you know, in, in the rural areas, they might be holding on to a, a version of the 50s where they didn't have to worry so much because things were more prosperous for, for rural areas back then. I mean, people really underestimate the resource wars that are actually happening. There, there are actually armed you know, that that was part of what the Bundy thing was about at the Malheur Refuge was a fight over water rights. And so when you're talking about a population that's dealing with not only decreasing resources, but decreasing attention to their issues, then, you know, there's going to be a, a kind of hark, a, a wish to harken back to the time when people valued the land their food was grown on and the people who grew it. And if you want to talk about a basket of resentment, I think that might be a, a good way to shorthand that of, you know, it used used to be that there was some respect for trades. It used to be that there was some respect for people who worked in coal mines. And now you hear things like, well, they should have not worked in coal mines. And if they wanted a job, they should have gone into tech. You want to make a comment on this, Dante? Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of truth in in, in all of that, and, and I do think that what the caller was saying about wanting the '50s back. I mean, I think look, a lot of people there are there are many minority groups in the United States, and 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 probably half of it in terms of gender who would have a lot of issues of going back to the '50s. But in terms of just the comfort of the '50s and understanding that things were going to be better for the next generation, yeah, for for everybody and. I don't know how many small towns I've been to in the United States where this is the middle of town and here's the factory that used to be here that closed now. Because everybody thinks rural America is a bunch of people, you know, tilling the land. And that's not it. A lot of rural America is just small towns um, that mm -hmm. made it with a factory in the middle of the town or, you know, they made pots or they made pans. And that factory closed. And when that factory closed, there really went the economic driver for the place. That's true in rural places all across the country. And, and, there, that, that's driving a lot of resentment, and it's real. It's real. So if you'd like to join the conversation, I hope you will. 844-745-TALK, T-A-L-K. We're on Twitter, too. You can use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. I especially want to hear if you are living in a small town, if you're on a farm, perhaps, you're listening tonight, uh, what do you make of this uh, urban-rural divide that we're talking about here with our special guests? Uh, we have Linda Tirado with us. She's in Athens, Ohio. She's written the book Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. And also with us is Dante Chinney. He's the director of the American American Communities Project at American University. Let's take a call, shall we? Uh, Missy from Arlington, Virginia, you are on Indivisible Radio. How are you tonight? 
Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. How are you? Good. So far, so good. So I understand that you uh, you, you have a bit of an accent. So are you from? <laughs> I grew up in rural, more rural Arkansas, uh, and I went to school, went to college in Tallahassee, Florida, and then moved uh, to Washington, D.C., and live in Arlington. So I have a, a unique perspective and um, uh, of African-American heritage. So it's also, uh, as the one of the speakers said, it's a very different um, vantage point when people relate to rural America as it relates to the African-American experience, or at least my personal experience, and this kind of pushback against going back to the way things used to be and uh, having that reflected in how we receive and share information about, you know, the current climate. So uh, my my comment really was about the lack of, I think, access to certain types of dialogue or or informed dialogue. Uh, and I use public radio as an as an example. Even public broadcast uh, station. When I'm here in D.C. or in Virginia, it's a very different lineup versus when I go home to Arkansas. The NPR station, the PBS stations are not airing the type of information that I would hear here. Right. And the same thing is true living in Florida when I would drive through southern rural Georgia or through Alabama. It is a very different conversation in terms of what is accessible to people, in terms of what can can be considered kind of the public discourse around some of these topics, that it's, it's protected and it's not even shared in, in the same ways in which it's encouraged and shared in, in other urban areas. All right. Thank you for sharing, by the way. I appreciate it, Missy. Thank you so much for that phone call. Say, I have something on Twitter here. Um, it's about fear. Karen, Karen on Twitter says, fear is being used by a powerful few to pit cities and rural areas against each other. Fear is playing us all. Linda, what about that? Um. You know, I think fear is is kind of a thing that politicians have always used to to run us all. I don't think it's any worse now than it used to be. They've always pandered with that. But I think the caller hit the nail on the head. I'm working on a year-long feature series for Elle where we follow people, women who voted for Trump, not wondering about their politics, but about their information input um, and, and talking about, okay, well, if you were getting the same media and you were getting the same stories and, and you had that kind of information saturation of the Limbaugh's and the Fox News is the way that it is in, in much of middle America. Would you be making different voting choices than you are in, in your echo chamber? And, and how avoidable is that echo chamber? And I mean, on the question of, of race and ruralness, look, I, I was raised in, in the whitest of the white states. Um, you know, I had actual Nazis living next to me when I first moved out of my parents' house, and that wasn't considered uncommon. And I didn't have a language to to even be able to articulate uh, what race in America was. I didn't have uh, the the knowledge base that I needed to understand those issues because they frankly aren't talked about. Um, and so I think that when people are talking about the rural and urban divide, a good portion of that divide is is purely informational. We talk about the difference in lifestyle, and one's fast paced and one's slow, and one is focused 
focused on on you know emerging sectors and tech, and one's focused on trades and and things like that. But it's the information gap that's really, as far as I can see, driving this this huge huge difference. Dante, do you have a comment about so, that? It's a big part of it. In fact, I'm sorry we've neglected to talk about it up to this point, but it's it's absolutely true. I mean, one thing I get from um, different providers, uh, consumer research firms, is you see, because uh, they can break the data down this way in these 13 county types I have, where people go to get their news, and it's radically different. I mean, look, it, it, and it's you can choose to get your news from a variety of sources, and social media has just made this worse. And and when, you, when you're tuned to one channel, either one channel in your radio or one channel, so to speak, in your social media world, um, you can get very different views of what's going on, and that's a real problem. Uh, and it's and it is driving a lot of the problems in the discourse. The one thing I would say also, though, when you talk about uh, the, what's pitting urban versus rural America increasingly in this country, is just that the fact that we live in a different economic world now, and we we just don't have as much as we used to have. It used to be that because because the budgets are tighter now, it used to be like there was enough to go around for everybody. There isn't as much now. Economics, you know, resources have gotten more scarce, and as they get scarce. People fight over them much more fiercely, and you know that's that's part of partially what we're going through. And it's and it's I don't see an easy way out of it. I I'm, I always hate these conversations because I don't want to seem like I'm the downer all the time. But look, these the things driving this separation are are concrete, and they are hard to get over. And 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 we're going to have to really work at it if we're going to get through it. All right, I'm going to leave it there. You two are fantastic. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Dante Chinney has been with us. He's a journalist in residence at George Washington University. He's the director of the American Communities Project at American University in Washington. Linda Tarado has been with us, too, in Athens, Ohio. She's the author of Hand-to-Mouth Living in Bootstrap America. Now, of course, we will continue the conversation on Twitter. You can use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. We have the podcast for you, too. Check that out when you have an opportunity. A lot of information by going to IndivisibleRadio.com. It's been fun sitting in for Carrie Miller. I'm Kathy Worzer. Indivisible, by the way, is a collaboration with WNYC in New York City and Minnesota Public Radio here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Again, check out our website, indivisibleradio.com. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.